in the movie, Sixth Sense, child psychologist Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis, returns home one night with his wife, Anna, after he has been honored for his work. A young man then appears in their bathroom and accuses Crow of failing him. Crow recognizes him as Vincent Gray, a former patient whom he treated as a child for hallucinations. Then Vincent shoots his former doctor before killing himself. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Crow begins working with another patient, nine-year-old Cole, whose case is similar to Vincent's. Meanwhile, he and his wife seldom, if ever, speak or do anything together. At the same time, Crow feels he must help Cole in order to rectify his failure to help Vincent. The boy eventually confides his secret to Crow in the seminal lines, I see dead people. He sees ghosts who walk around like the living, but they are unaware that they are dead. The doctor suggests to the boy that he should try to find a purpose for his gift by communicating with the ghost and perhaps aiding them with their unfinished business. Now, the basis of the movie is that ghosts exist and walk among us, which is, of course, not true. However, the movie's main point is really more about perception than it is about ghosts. Because something happens near the end of the movie that will change everything that has been understood up to this point. You see, Dr. Crow, along with the audience, discover together that the good doctor is dead. Come to find out that when Vincent shot Dr. Crow, Vincent actually killed him. We find that out at the end. And that fact changes everything that we thought we knew. In his book, Cross Vision, Gregory Boyd uses this movie to, to illustrate the importance of perception. If we have the wrong perception, we can misunderstand everything that is connected to it. However, the right perception is illuminating. In fact, the movie demonstrates that focus. It initially begins with a light bulb that turns brighter and brighter. Today, we are going to consider our perception about God. Is God good? Is he absolute love? When some read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they wonder how the God of love in the New Testament can be the same God that kills in the Old Testament. Is he some type of Dr. Jekyll who occasionally turns into Mr. Hyde? Is God always loving? Is God love? Or is he love and wrath, love and anger, etc.? Calvary answers that question of who God is. Because there on the cross where Jesus died, he is displayed in flashing neon lights, saying, I love you. I love you. This is who I am. If you didn't get it in the Old Testament revelation about me, now you can see it clearly from the cross. 
He is love, period. He is the God who loves and everything, everything that he does, he does according to his great love. So what the Bible calls his wrath flows from his great love. So what the uh, patience, long-suffering, forgiveness, justice, etc., all flow from his love. They are not additional traits of God. They are the outflow of his love. They are the characteristics of his love. So when we ask, how could a loving God send a flood that kills everybody on earth except eight people, we will answer that through the lenses of the cross that will illuminate our understanding and perhaps challenge our perceptions about God in such accounts in scripture as Noah's flood. 1 John 4, 8-10 states, Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that he loved us, not that we love God, but that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the scriptures teach that God is love. And furthermore, we know that God has proved his love for us by sending Jesus into the world to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to restore us so that we can be a part of his eternal plan and purpose. Concerning that plan, God has a wonderful purpose for humanity. His desire is to be joined to us for all eternity, and he communicates that plan through the imagery of the bride that is faithful humanity who will be joined to Christ for all eternity. So God provided Jesus a member of the triune God, to come to earth and die for us. It was a rescue operation that demonstrated God's incredible love. Now, that's a game changer because it proves that God is who he says he is. God is love. That's not just a nice sentiment. It's a fact and it's the truth. That love is foreseen throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus said to his scoffers, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Jesus identified with the writings of Moses, the oldest writings of Scripture, that pointed directly to him. Therefore, all of Scripture points forward to Jesus' resurrection, either as a future event, as in the New Testament, or it points, um, no, as in the Old Testament, or it points back to it from the cross. Therefore, God's love was demonstrated at Jesus' crucifixion, and it becomes the lenses through which we view and interpret all of Scripture. So today, we will interpret the account of Noah's flood through the lenses of God's love, which was demonstrated on the cross. 
So let's first gather some facts about Noah's flood. And we'll interpret those facts by viewing them through the cross's perspective. We begin with Adam and Eve sinning, and they are expelled from the Garden of Eden into a fallen, violent world. Right from the start, their first son, Cain, killed his brother Abel. That began a pattern of violence. Truly, paradise was lost. Later, Cain's fifth generational descendant was Lamech. Three things are known about Cain's descendant. He was a killer, a polygamist, and a braggart. Comparing himself to his ancestor Cain, he brags about killing a man. Cain murdered, and now Lamech kills. Due to humanity's sinful nature, violence is growing. However, what happens next will significantly increase Earth's violence level. Satan begins the establishment of his domain over the planet and over humanity as his subjects. Since partaking in Lucifer's rebellion and removing themselves from under God's protection, the first human pair and their descendants are quickly subjugated by this higher spirit being. Now, as a result of their rebellion, Lucifer's kingdom has invaded the earth, and the spiritual war between good and evil has begun. From now on, there will be cascading violence. The fallen angels against the faithful ones. The fallen angels against humanity. And humans against other humans. So, Angels, as we can see here, you've got good angels, you've got bad angels, angels that are following God, angels who are not. And all of them are called, whether good or bad, they're called sons of God because it's a title, it's a description. Because when they look back, they don't see parents and grandparents. They see God. God is their source, their direct Uh, creations of God. For that same reason, Adam is called the Son of God in Luke 3, 38, because God was Adam's direct creator, too. With that understanding, let's read Genesis 6, 1 to 2. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves all that they chose. Some of those fallen angels, who are called the sons of God, descended to earth and took a physical form by manipulating biological matter into humanoid life forms. We don't know exactly how they did that. But even today's modern scientists are doing some pretty extraordinary things by manipulating DNA and changing existing biological matter even to the point of altering our food and experimenting with animals and DNA. So these fallen angels took what God had already created, altered it to their own suiting. You might say that they suited themselves in humanoid form. Even though these fallen angels looked human, they were not human. They were not a part of the community of Adam. Instead, They were invaders who merely appeared human while still maintaining their supernatural abilities. 
This is the first organized assault by Satan's angels to dominate the planet, and humanity was no match against such powerful beings. So the fallen angels descended to earth like gods. They came as a conquering army, taking control of the planet and even taking as many wives as they wanted. However, nowhere does it state that they loved their wives. Instead, the scriptures say that they were motivated by desire because the women were beautiful. Therefore, unlike a Hollywood love story, the fallen angels did not desert heaven for love. Instead, they deserted the love of God for lust and power. The scriptures go on to explain in Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God, those fallen angels, went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them, these were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Now to this unnatural union of the fallen angels with human women, children were born, who were called the Nephilim, which means giant, bully, tyrant. All of these definitions fit into the theme of violence. But how was it possible that these angels, for these angels to have children? Angels are spirit beings and are without gender. They are also unable to reproduce or impart any of their angelic, supernatural nature. So, they did not create here some hybrid angel-humanoid version of themselves. Instead, they could only procreate through the biological forms that they, that they made, because only God can create life. They can use what's already existing, turn it into something else, but they can't create life, only God. And that's just what human scientists are doing today. A lot of times manipulating life that already exists, cloning, DNA alterations. We're seeing that today and probably we'll see more and more of that in the future. So the fallen angels fathered through the bodies that they formed. However, as I said, they were not able to reproduce their angelic nature, only the bodies that they were using. Therefore, their children did not, did not possess supernatural powers. Their children only possessed a physical form. Together, the sons of God, the fallen angels, and the Nephilim were powerful and ruled as tyrants on the earth, which added to the escalation of violence already experienced. After all, Genesis 6-4 called them warriors. As warriors... Who were they fighting? Each other? The humans? By calling them warriors, we see that the Nephilim were violent. They were the first to be called warriors, and their influence sped up and accelerated the worst in humanity. In fact, they were also called heroes. On top of that, and that reveals much about their evil, much about the evil, violent society that would call them that. The production of the Nephilim was not just a one-time occurrence. It was an ongoing problem in the pre-flood world. 
Referring back to Genesis 6-4, the scriptures state the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So soon after the initial births of the Nephilim, there became an ongoing proliferation of them. This could have been achieved either through each falling angel having multiple offspring or the Nephilim themselves reproducing themselves. This continual increase in the Nephilim population posed a threat to Adam's bloodline. If the interbreeding was allowed to continue, then humanity's community of one as multiplications of Adam would be at risk. And that could possibly interfere with the birth of Jesus as the last Adam, which would ultimately threaten God's plan of salvation. So, This situation required God's immediate intervention. However, for God to just deal with the fallen angels and the Nephilim would not be enough. The problem was that humanity had been corrupted to such an extent that the Eternal One had to intervene to save humanity from themselves and to secure the way for the coming of Jesus. Both concerns demonstrated God's love for us. Therefore, God needed to deal with the fallen angels, the Nephilim, and their combined impact on humanity, which he did. At some point, God removed the fallen angels from the earth and imprisoned them. Concerning those angels, the scriptures say, And the angels who did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains in deepest darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In the above scripture, Jude links the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah back to the sin of those angels by stating that Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as they, the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. The rest of the fallen angels who did not cohabitate with women remain free and are today known as demons. Then... God sent the flood to destroy all of humanity except Noah and his family. Since the fallen angels were in prison, the Nephilim either died off prior to the flood or in the flood. The scriptures do not say when they died. However, the memory of them lived on after the flood and formed the basis for many ancient myths about God's producing powerful human, um, half-human, half-God offspring with human women. Now, even after God removed the fallen angels and the Nephilim, the earth was still filled with human violence and wickedness. With humanity in such a mess, God regretted creating them. The Lord said, The Lord saw the wickedness of the humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry 
that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God was saddened by what he saw and saddened by what needed to be done. Although he knew through his foreknowledge that this would happen, seeing firsthand must have been very difficult for the God who is love. So this was the state of things for the first 1,656 years of Earth's history, going back to Adam up to Noah. During that time period, humanity experienced very long lifespans, the longest being Methuselah, who lived 969 years. Although all humans would eventually die, which somewhat limited the spread and increase of evil, God determined that now he needed to further intervene. So at the time of the flood, the creator chose to shorten humanity's lifespan in order to slow down the growth of violence and evil. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. Therefore, after the flood, the recorded lifespans of humanity gradually decreased. Noah was 600 years old at the time of the flood. He lived another 350 years afterwards for a total of 959 years. Over the next nine generations, the lifespan of his descendants eventually dwindled down to just 170, 175 years with Abraham. Seven centuries after Abraham, Moses died at 120 years old, reaching the new limit that God had ordained. Even today, 120 years is considered the maximum life expectancy. Given humanity's long lifespan and long childbearing years, author Hugh Ross in his book, The Genesis Question, estimates that the world population at the time of the flood could have been potentially 58,669,903,000. However, given the violence level on the planet at that time, it probably was far less. Even if just 10% of that potential population survived to the time of the flood, still 5 billion people might have been alive at the time of Noah's flood. That's very close to today's population. Therefore, Noah's flood... Um, came at a time when there weren't just a few farming or seaside villages. Now, the 120 years that God spoke about could have also had a dual meeting. We already addressed one of them, that the new limit to human lifespan, but the the other definition may have been the time period, the merciful time period, that God allowed for that generation to repent. As such, the ark became a visible warning to those around it that the flood was coming. As Noah loaded the boat with provisions, its very presence condemned that faithless generation who did not believe. In the minds of those faithless and violent, in the midst, rather, of that faithless and violent culture, it took great courage for Noah to build the ark and prepare it. 
That is why the Bible lists Noah as a man of faith and encourages others to follow his example. So Noah found righteousness because he had faith in God, but his faith was not just a mental acknowledgement of God's existence, because even the fallen angels then and now know that. Instead, Noah had a relationship with his creator. He walked with God. He believed and trusted in God. So the Eternal One said to him, I am determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. God went on to tell Noah how to build the ark that would save not only Noah and his family, but a sampling of the animals as well. In order to have sufficient space in the ark to hold all of that, the ark was built 450 feet long, 45 feet high, with three floor levels on its interior, and it was 75 feet wide. Now, that's a big boat. How many of you have seen the replica of Noah's Ark in Berlin Center, Ohio? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Indeed. When everything was ready, the Eternal One told Noah to enter the ark with his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, along with the animals. Then God closed the only door. Seven days later, the rivers deep within the earth burst out, and torrential rain fell for the next 40 days and 40 nights. The waters that God had held back during the creation week that brought the land to the surface was released now from deep within the earth and from the skies above. It was an act of de-creation. Often God, in the Old Testament and New Testament as we go through, uses evil to destroy evil by simply stepping away so that evil essentially will self-destruct. Noah's flood is an example of that. Concerning the creation account, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 states, For in him, Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. According to the above scripture, Jesus, as the representative of the triune God who created everything, is also the one who holds everything together. Life began and continues on earth because of one reason. God protects it. He makes sure that no meteor hits the earth. He holds back the chaotic forces that would otherwise destroy it. So as the author of creation, it was he who prepared the earth for habitation and spoke light into being on the first day of creation. It was he who held back the waters on the second and the third days of creation, creating the atmosphere above and the water cycle and pulled the water from the surface into underground rivers below the earth. That resulted in the gathering of the surface water into one place, and the, and the land appeared. 
Next, God created plant life, sea life, and animals. In the minds of the ancient peoples, the seas and oceans symbolized the chaotic forces of nature that was bad because they were powerless against it. So in the account of Noah's flood, the creator stepped away and released the waters that had been gathered above the earth in the atmosphere and below the earth in the underground rivers so that the earth returned to its initial its initial state before creation was darkened by the torrential rains, covered with water, no land, no plant life, no animals. It was the reversal of the creation week. Scholars call this the decreation. Then after the torrential rain stopped and 150 days passed, he sent a wind that caused the waters to start to subside in Genesis 8.1. Interesting, he began the creation week by sending the spirit who moved on the face of the waters. Remember that? Now the Hebrew word for wind and spirit are the same word. So God is now taking similar steps in the recreation as he did in the original creation. Genesis 8.1 says that God sent a wind to cause the waters to subside. Doing so began a restoration process that took another 150 days for the waters to recede until the boat rested on Mount Ariad. Therefore, a year after entering the ark, the earth was finally dry. Then Noah, his family, and all the animals left the ark. It had been a horrific experience, one whose memory was generationally passed down to over 110 cultures around the world with omissions and additions in their own version of the flood story. Something else that's important about Noah's flood is that it serves as a picture of another judgment that is yet to come. At that future time, the fallen angels and all of humanity who follows them will be judged. The corrupted system on the surface of the planet will be destroyed again. But this time, it will not be by water that merely washes it away, but by fire that annihilates it. Then the earth will be cleansed from the faithless ones who practice violence and faithful humanity will be resurrected and glorified. Second Peter 3, 7 says, First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water through which the world at that time was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. Noah's flood and the end of days are two parallel judgment periods. Jesus warned about the future destruction. However, just like in Noah's day, many will not heed the warning because they don't believe. They are without faith and are just like in no and just like in Noah's day, God will respect their choice. Matthew 24:37, Jesus says, For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Since the pre-flood generation was faithless, they paid no attention to Noah's preaching and the building of the ark. They were warned, but they did not believe. So they were caught unaware and unprepared when the catastrophe hit. The same will be true when Jesus returns. Now, Jesus taught about the flood because there are similarities between that time period and the time period when he returns. In both cultures, violence is ruining the earth. In Noah's day, it was called corrupting the earth. Speaking of the final judgment, Revelations eleven eighteen says, The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Note, Our present-day state of violence has escalated since Noah's day. The invention and use of weapons of mass destruction, that takes all of that takes the problem of violence to a whole new level. Another similarity in both time periods, the world was and will be dominated by a very evil core of rulers. In the pre-flood world, it was ruled by the fallen angels and their offspring, the Nephilim. At the end of days, it will be ruled spiritually by Satan and the fallen angels through the physical presence of the Antichrist and the beast system. Lastly, in both, God steps back and releases the forces of nature. The flood was a destructive force in Noah's day, and many of the plagues in the book of Revelation are natural-based destruction forces that will end in an annihilation by fire. So... How could a loving God send a flood? The path of the flood destroyed all land-based life. Animals and plants died along with probably about 5 billion people. Why did God step back to make this massive destruction possible? If he loves humanity, how could he do that? When I was in middle school, I saw a Western movie. I don't remember its name or much about it. In fact, I mainly remember just one scene where a woman is working alone in a cabin. Suddenly, the cabin door was forced open by a group of men who were carrying in her son. Previous to this scene, it was known that he had been missing for days. With just a glance, she saw that it was her boy. And with one sweep of her arms, she cleared the table and yelled, Put him on the table! She grabbed a knife and started ripping off his trouser. Those around gasped at the sight. His injured leg was badly infected. He was dying. She reaches for a nearby axe and wipes it as she yells, hold him down. The boy is fighting and screaming, no, ma, no, please stop. She yells over his screams, hold him, just as she brings the axe down hard on the boy's leg, and blood is spewed everywhere. It was a horrific scene by the standards of filmmaking at that time. If I had only seen this scene and not the story that came before it or after it, I might have thought, how could she do that? Doesn't she love him? I might think that she's a monster or a psychopath. 
instead of knowing her story prior to this instance. Because I did know that story, I realized how much she loved him, how her actions were motivated by love. She did it not because of a lack of love, but because of her great love for him. She saved his life. Her love for him gave her the strength to do what appears to be horribly heartless. The same is true about God. If my perception about Noah's flood only contained the numbers of the death toll, and that's all I knew was those who died, I might not believe that God really is loving. However, just like the woman in the story, God's love is so enormous, tough, strong. He is not weak. He is not an enabler. He is not icky sweet. And because of that, he can do what must be done in order to save humanity, however unpleasant it is. As such, he consistently does throughout history what he has to do to successfully unfold his eternal plan and purpose for us. It is his love for humanity that drives him to do so. So let's review the facts quickly about Noah's flood. The fallen angels and their Nephilim children control the planet. Through them, the violence on earth was escalating to the point that humanity was consumed by it. The scriptures state that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Evil had reached its pinnacle of destruction It had to be stopped or many future generations might be annihilated before their birth. In addition, the purity of the human bloodline was at risk with the interbreeding and that placed a risk on the coming of Jesus as the true son of Adam. Jesus had to be human in order to take our place. It was a tough decision and God made the only rational choice. And his choice was consistent with the love that he displayed on the cross. His actions regarding the flood made the future cross possible because Jesus' death on the cross made salvation possible for everyone who died throughout all of time. Through the lenses of the cross, we can see the, the God of love who is at work during the flood securing our salvation and his eternal plan and purpose for us. We also see his great love demonstrated by the warning that he gave, that, that, um, that he gave to that generation. God warned them in love. He gave Noah's generation 120 years to repent. He sent Noah to preach to them. And while the ark was being constructed, they had the constant visual reminder of what was coming. Therefore, everyone, everyone had a chance to repent and be saved. It wasn't his desire that any would perish. So the God who loves warned them, gave them time to repent, and waited until there were none 
that were undecided. Jesus says something, an angel in Revelation concerning the return of Jesus says something very similar. Revelations 22.11 says, Let the evildoer still be evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous do right. And the, and the holy still be holy. Jesus will not return to earth until everyone has made their choice and lined themselves up on one side or the other. And that's the same chance the people had in the generation of Noah. And he waits patiently until that happens. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. After making their choice, the flood came, and each person makes their choice when Jesus returns too. Those who do evil and those who are filthy will go into judgment, into the judgment that they chose. And those who are righteous and holy will be saved in the embrace of Jesus. As we grow in God's love and grow in our understanding of his love, we will be in wonder eternally. We will be in wonder of him and his love for us. Even when there are instances where we can't discern a loving purpose for a particular action of God, we can still be assured that there is a necessary and loving reason for his actions like the movie, The Sixth Sense, when things don't look right, when Malcolm Crowe's wife seems to ignore him, at the end we realize she wasn't ignoring him because we just didn't understand, so we had the wrong perception. When we don't understand God's actions as loving, we should expect that there is some missing information. In those cases, we can still trust even when we don't understand because through the perspective of the cross, through the lenses of the cross, God has shown himself as love and that fact clarifies our perception on everything. Amen. Amen. 